Welcome, everybody, to the Health and Wellness Show. Today is Friday, March 25th, 2016. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio on the SOT Radio Network from all over the planet, uh, we have Doug, Erica, Tiff, uh, Elliot, and Harrison. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. Hi, guys. Hi, everyone. So today should be a pretty good show. We're talking about an interesting uh, topic, um, the placebo placebo effect. Uh, so physicians and scientists have known about the placebo effect for well over 50 years. Uh, there's plenty of studies that have shown that placebos are just as effective as medication with active ingredients. Um, <clears throat> yet the mainstream study of placebos uh, gets very little attention. So today we're going to talk about the placebo effect uh, kind of dive into it. Uh, what does it mean? Uh, you know, what can it do? Um, and a number of, uh, of different, uh, you know, uh, topics or subtopics around that topic that we'll be focusing to on, uh, a book by Joe Dispenza, uh, which is quite interesting. Um, and talking about some of the material from there. Um, so I think first, I guess let's, uh, let's start off by, Defining placebo and just, you know, I'm sure that most people have heard that term and, and are kind of familiar with it means, uh, with what it means. Um, I have a, here, I pulled up the online etymology dictionary for placebo. And uh, in some reading about this, I learned that it's it's actually, technically it's pronounced placebo because it's, an, it's, <laughs> a, it's a Latin word, but, you know, we won't try to do that just because it's more commonly known as placebo, but... Uh, <clears throat> Early uh, 13th century, it was a name given to the rite of Vespers in the Office of the Dead, so-called from the opening of the first antiphon, uh, quote-unquote, I will please the Lord in the land of the living. Uh, from Latin, placebo, I shall please. Uh, future indicative of placere, to please. Um, so in the medical sense, it's first recorded in 1785, uh, referred to as a medicine given more to please than to benefit the patient, hmm. uh, which is think, I think is kind of interesting because we have um, a lot of studies have shown that it does not only please the patient, it actually does benefit um, the patient. Um, so placebo can, can be anything, you know, from uh, dummy pills, sugar pills to uh, uh, automatic uh, suggestion, uh, hypnosis, uh, a whole number of things kind of fall under the realm of the placebo effect, but it's more generally considered, uh, you know, anything that's not uh, pharmacological medicine, you know, that, that appears to have the same effect that that, that, that said medicine would have. Um, so I don't know, you know, I guess uh, to start off our discussion, I'd be curious if you guys have had any experience with the placebo effect. I've, I've had, I guess, you know, not, not specifically, not like with dummy pills or anything like that, but I have had, um, cases where, you know, I, I got a cut or a scratch that hurt pretty bad and I was able to concentrate on it and, and kind of reduce the pain, um, hmm. just by, just by focusing, um, nothing like Wim Hof really, like we were talking about last week, but just more like, you know, uh, general reduction of, of pain by, by concentration. But I've, I've never actually been in a, you know, a placebo like a straight up placebo situation where somebody gave me a pill and said, here, this will fix you. And I said, Oh, okay. And then it did. But I don't <laughs> know if you guys have ever had any experience like that or something similar. Um, I have, uh, yeah. actually, uh, 20 years ago, 
plus um, when I was uh, pregnant, and I read a book called Shakti Gawain's Creative Visualization. And at the time, I had no idea what placebo meant or uh, the idea behind it. But basically, I read this little book. And then when I went into labor, um, in the book, they had talked about, you know, visualizing what you wanted. And so, uh, you know, you have a focus object. And so for me, it was like the sprinkler head in the hospital ceiling. And I just focused on that with all my attention and um Essentially, I left my body. They offered me uh, copious amounts of drugs in addition to uh, what they call an epidural or a, a saddle block so you don't feel pain. I refused all those and basically with my mind uh, was able to essentially leave my body and go through 12 hours of labor without any pain. And I, I shouldn't say without any pain. You know, I mean, there's definitely pain, but it, it was... Um, actually pretty life-changing to go through such an, a, an experience at such a young age too and realize that you really you, the power of your mind can really affect your body and so I had the baby yeah. no drugs nothing and then I had a second child two years later did the exact same thing and it worked wow. so um, they're really and you know this is uh, spoken a lot of in midwifery literature and whatnot that really you know women have been doing this for thousands and thousands of years and and the whole medical intervention and labor is you know they kind of tell you you're weak or you can't handle it and really the power of the mind to go through something like that and to just i think for me the most important thing was that this was going to happen whether i i wanted it to or not that makes sense and it just made the whole process that much easier so yes i've definitely experienced so before it. you read the book did you have any kind of clue that that kind of thing was possible because we watch tv and movies and stuff when they show women in childbirth and they're always like screaming and cussing and <laughs> like hitting people and it's just like the worst experience ever yeah well it, there's i think uh they call it transition in labor where it starts slow and then the pain gets more and more intense and really, for me, just that creative visualization, like focusing on something to ride out the intensity and to calm yourself down so you don't get into a panic mode, right? Because I think what you're speaking of is mm -hmm. a lot of women are like, I can't do this, I can't do this. And I have one more little added note on that. Uh, I was at a birth two years ago with a close girlfriend, and same thing, they were offering drugs and the, the epidural and she was starting to go through that transition the baby was coming and she's like just give me the drugs just give me the drugs and and i said to her oh they already gave you the drugs don't you remember the doctor came in they gave you the drugs you're all good and and she had the baby <laughs> and afterwards she's like wow i can't believe that the drugs i didn't feel anything i said well i lied they didn't no. give you the drugs so just that that suggestion you know that just like what we're going to talk about today, that placebo effect, that suggestion in your mind, oh, you've already got the drugs, it's going to work. And, and I've seen it happen. Mm. Wow. Wow. Well, they say that even conventional drugs that do have active ingredients, like the majority of their efficacy is because of the placebo effect. And there's been articles on SOT where they say that um, the placebo effect works not just because somebody believes that the pill that they're going to take works. It's the whole ritual of, like, going to the doctor's office, 
having somebody in a white coat tell you that this medicine is going to be good for you, the whole ritual of taking the pill, like all of those things tells you that you're taking steps to get well, and that is part of the placebo effect too. Yeah, well, the the history of placebo is kind of interesting because the it, it didn't really, um, well, there, it wasn't really in the medical literature until uh, a couple developments in medicine happened because if you think about like even a hundred... 150 years ago, um, like your local doctor or the you know the person making the rounds and coming to your house, it was a very common practice to to take into account the patient's uh, mental and emotional state of being at the time. So it was really actually focused on. That was something that doctors paid attention to and noted in their notes and in their treatments. But as the kind of scientific materialism philosophy started gaining ground in science that went away because all of a sudden it became um, obvious to scientists that and doctors that there was no such thing as a mind, that the, the so-called <clears throat> Cartesian dualism, the difference between body and mind, was a myth because there was no such thing as mind because everything was mechanical and, and biological or physical at the base. So <clears throat> there was this total denial of the, of the existence and efficacy um, of the mind, and by efficacy, I mean that it can have any causal influence on anything. So it was—it's kind of ironic because as, as this happened, there there developed this idea that the mind and the brain were exactly the same thing. So around this, the time that this was happening, um, pretty much all doctors, all mainstream doctors, were totally against the idea of of um, what we know as like a placebo effect or any kind of related phenomenon like uh, like hypnosis or faith healing or anything like that. And so it was totally ignored. But because they were seeing the mind and the brain as the same thing, all of a sudden that kind of opened the doorway for accepting some of these phenomena because they started to think, um, okay, well, if only the brain exists, then that means if something kind of changes something in the brain... Then, that, then the brain can have uh, an effect on the physical systems in the body, like the nervous system and the immune system. So this is where we get what, uh, what we call nowadays uh, psychoneuroimmunology. And so mm -hmm. this is just the basic idea that <clears throat> something like stress has an effect on health. And so scientists were able to, well, in their minds, they think they've got it nailed down, that the, the, the exact like chemical pathways and changes in the body that make this the case. So you you have a, a heightened stress response, and this increases like what your uh, like heightened T cells or something like that, and and it suppresses your immune system because of kind of these known chemicals and uh, biological changes. So that that's pretty much accepted in science nowadays, almost completely, um, but only because they were seeing the mind and the brain as totally the same thing, and so they could say, okay, well this is just a physical process affecting another physical process, so we can un we can understand it. But um, but there's more to it, of course, because psychoneuroimmunology isn't the only phenomenon, and pl the placebo effect is a big one. Now, the placebo effect came along um, mainly because uh, of the scientific method that um, doctors and, and uh, medical researchers started doing, which involved kind of double-blind um, scientific ex experiments where they were doing actual, like, um, um, tests like on new drugs and so what they found was that when they were using their control their so-called control um was uh, a plus well they didn't 
call it a placebo. At first, it was just a like a sugar pill or something like that, something that should have been totally inert and have no effect. But in doing their statistical analyses on these first tests, they realized that that it was having an, having an effect. And so nowadays, when, well, um, a lot of people still, not everyone, but when they're doing their tests, they use the placebo as their control. So that means that they know that the placebo effect works. They know that a certain number of people will get um, a positive response from this placebo. And so then they, they just judge the drug that they're testing in comparison to that placebo. So let's say, I'm just making these numbers up, let's say you've got 100 people, and in each group, and you give the so the placebo to 100 people and the, the real drug, so-called, to the other group. And let's say the placebo affects um, 30 people positively um, in that group. And then the, the, the drug affects maybe 35 or 40. So that means that those 5 or 10 extra people are, are affected by the drug, and they can say, okay, well, this drug works. But like Tiff was saying, oftentimes... The, the majority or, or a large part of those people who benefit from the drug, they're actually getting the placebo effect because there's that 30 people in, in both groups that are getting the effect, and, um, but it's from the placebo because you take off that 30 and only 5 or 10 maybe are getting the, the effect from the drug. And it's even the case, uh, I can't remember the statistics, but I read some a while ago about, uh, about like the limits the number of people that have to be positively benefited by the drug in order for it to get, um, you know, put into circulation, and it's not very big. Like a, a really small number of people on top of the placebo effect have to, have to be effective. So in those cases, it is the majority of the effect that is due to placebo, <laughs> which is pretty crazy when you think about it. But but yeah. But even then. Uh, all these doctors and medical researchers will accept that placebo is a real effect but they have no idea how it works. And that's the big mystery, is that this is a very, very strange thing to be happening. Much, It's mm. not, like, doctors will say, oh, well, that's just placebo. When they say just placebo, but what is a placebo? They have no idea, and it shouldn't work according to their, um, their kind of basic philosophical um, like principles and beliefs about the way the, the way the universe works, the way medicine works, the way the body works. It's that they have no idea... They cannot explain it based on their current, um, you know, scientific understanding, so-called. Yeah, it kind of gets brushed under the rug in a lot of cases. It's like, like you said, it's just the placebo. Well, it's like, well, hold on a second. What exactly is happening there? Like what you're saying is there's no active ingredient coming from outside, yet the, these people are having an, a, a, a beneficial effect. It just, you know, but, but it's almost like that nobody wants to think about that. It's kind of like, yeah, it's just a placebo so that, that you can just brush it aside. But really, there's, there's obviously something very powerful going on there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, just one you other thing. If, uh, Go ahead. Oh, oh, I was just going to say, I have to wonder if it's, the, um, <clears throat> if it's the body actually creating the substances themselves. So let's say, you know, you, you need um, dopamine in your body. And you don't take dopamine, you, you take a, a sugar pill or you have some sort of suggestion. Does your body then create dopamine or does your body do something else? Is something else happening and there's really no dopamine in the picture at all? Well, there no, actually that is was it. a story. Uh, it was an article carried on Sato. It was very short, but they were talking about a Parkinson's drug trial. Mm -hmm. And um, they 
tested one group of Parkinson's patients, and they gave them a precursor to dopamine. And they tested how much dopamine they produced once they got the injection. And they had another control group where they just gave them a saline injection. And those people produced just as much dopamine as people who got the, the actual drug. And so the, <clears throat> the researcher concluded that dopamine does play a part in the placebo effect. And there was also another article that said something about um, if you have the genetics for producing greater amounts of dopamine than the average person, then you are more likely to benefit from a placebo. So dopamine does mm. play a role in it. Yeah, well, but it isn't just dopamine because there was right, another no. study. Yeah, there was another study where they, they um, were doing um, some sort of pain study. And uh, what they noted was that the, the, the people were kind of creating their own um, – pain reduction like opioids basically um that that by you know getting the placebo effect they were actually their body was creating opioids to block pain and that when they gave them a drug that actually blocked the receptors for those opioids they would feel the pain again so the the kind of the 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 mechanism of action there is that it's not just that you're um, kind of believing that you're not going to have pain, so you don't have pain. You're sort of believing that you aren't going to have pain, and that creates those opioids or releases those opioids, and those can be blocked just like any drug, opioid drug could be blocked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like um, there's, a, there's a great book that I, I go to every once in a while because it's a giant book. It's called Irreducible Mind, um, and it's a – it's a book that's got all kinds of kind of parapsychological things in it, and it's it's written by a group of, of psychologists and other professionals and uh, medical professionals, published in 2007. But it's got a section on on placebo and this psychobiological influence. Um, but but just before I get to one thing, um, there's a there's another there's another aspect of placebo, and it's called the nocebo. And it actually, it's the same principle, but it goes in the opposite direction. So this will be um, uh, an agent, uh, a harmless agent that is um, believed to be harmful, which which then has a harmful effect. So, for example, they've done tests on people with asthma where they will give them, uh, well, they'll, they'll spray a saline solution into their nose and tell them that it's uh, like some kind of allergen, and then... Uh, just like the placebo, they'll have an effect. So these people will then have an asthmatic reaction to this saline solution, and then they'll say, mm-hmm. "Okay, well here's the here's the antidote, basically." And then they'll spray the same solution, and the the asthma attack will go away. So I mm-hmm. wanted to bring that up. But there there was another one about the nocebo effect. It was in uh, Joe Dispenza's book, "You Are the Placebo," where this guy and his girlfriend were having a rough time, and they argued. And he said that, you know, oh, forget everything. I'm just going to kill myself. And he happened to be in a, a medical study where they gave him some pills. And I think it was the study was on depression. So the pills were antidepressants or so he thought. So he said, forget everything. I'm just going to kill myself. I'm going to take an overdose. So he took the whole bottle of the experimental pills and, you know, he started having all the symptoms of overdose, but he had changed his mind. So I think a neighbor found him on the floor, and then they called the ambulance, and he went to the hospital. So they tested the – the they no, he didn't have any of the pills. He took them all, but he told them he was in the study. So they called the people who ran the study, and they found out that he was actually in the placebo group. So all the pills yeah. that he overdosed on were sugar pills. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but just, 
back to the top, the, the question of what's actually happening with the placebo, like it is, is it actually producing, uh, producing that drug, let's say, inside the, the person's body, um, there's actually several different things going on. Because like we've, we've already, already mentioned two of the examples, like the dopamine and opioids, those are two of the, the kind of biggest ones in the literature. So the, the, the placebo can produce um, like endogenous opioids in the body, which have a, a pain-dulling effect. And also the dopamine, in the case of, of Parkinson's disease uh, research and, and medications. But um, according to the, the literature, it's, it's not that simple. So in some cases, the, the placebo will, will mimic what the drug does. In other cases, it'll do something completely different, which will, <clears throat> which will have a similar effect, however. Like it may, so um, depending on what the drug is trying to combat, it will, it will go about some kind of, of healing or, or something like that, but using a different, a different means, and sometimes it's not entirely clear what it is. Um, some, <clears throat> so sometimes it's... it's um, we, it's, we just don't know. It's it, some diseases are more susceptible to placebo than others. It's not like a, a one, uh, you know, one dose for for every every disease kind of thing. And um, I just want to read one thing here. So there's also um, an aspect of conditioning. So um, in some cases, the placebo acts like a conditioned response. So you can give let's say a placebo or no um um a real drug linked to like let's say a certain flavor or a saline solution and you can give that person and they'll it'll have a good effect and then you take away the active ingredient and you're just giving them the saline solution and then that um that will continue to have the effect so in an experiment like mm -hmm. that it looks like a kind of a classical conditioning a conditioned response is what's going on in other cases of course there's no previous conditioning they just give a brand new drug um, and and the response is there, so there's a there's a contradiction there too. So what they um, these researchers tried to to determine um, what was what going on here, and so the the Kellys in this book, Irreducible Mind, write, um, for example, Benedetti and his colleagues found that expectation seemed to be the primary factor in the re in the release of endogenous opioids in response to placebo given for pain relief whereas conditioning seemed more involved in the release of hormones such as dopamine in Parkinson's patients. So it's actually pretty complex what's going on, and that's just using two examples. So, um, like, presumably there's... The, the, it can be... Well, we don't even know how many different, different kinds of placebo effects there are. And this is using pills, yeah. pills or, um, or injections or even sham surgeries. Mm -hmm. So they've had the same thing where they'll... they'll They'll um, conduct a surgery that actually doesn't do anything, and the people will have a positive healing response to that. And the weird thing is, like reading over the the research on these sham surgeries, from all these studies that they've quoted, it sounds like the sham surgeries are often as good or even better than mm -hmm. the real surgeries. And yeah. from all these studies that they quoted, I didn't see one that they quoted that said that the actual surgery was better than the sham surgery. <laughs> yeah, they actually published it, uh, the Baylor School of Medicine in 2012. They published uh, in the uh, New England Journal about knee surgery uh, for people with yep. debilitating knee pain. And the, the patients were divided into three groups. Uh, the surgeon shaved the damaged cartilage in the knee of one group. For the second group, they just flushed out the knee joint, um, a standard strategy for people with severely arthritic knees. And then the third group had 
um, the knee, uh, they believed they had the knee surgery, but basically it was faked. They were just sedated and, and uh, uh, an incision was made and it was splashed with salt water. Um, and then they sewed up the incision like the real thing and the process was complete. And mm-hmm. then all three um, of the groups went through the same rehab process and uh, with astonishing results, the placebo group... <coughs> improved just as much as the other two groups had in the surgery. And uh, Dr. Mosley, the surgeon involved in the study, made a bold statement emphasizing that his skill as a surgeon had no benefit on these patients, that the entire benefit of the surgery for osteoarthritis of the knee was the placebo effect. Yeah, they, this same study is quoted in this book, and there's, there's one in, more interesting thing about it, because um, first they, they quote the same results, so they say overall... There were no differences between the three groups. Patients in all three groups repeated, re- repeated, reported less pain and improved function. So the three groups were what? There was the, the real surgery, the, place- the, the sham surgery, and... Um, Just a fleshing out of the, yeah. the tissue. And so they said, more significantly, on the measures evaluated by physicians, objectively measured walking and stair climbing were poorer in the surgery group <laughs> than in the placebo <laughs> group. Wow. Jeez. Oh, yeah. And the funny thing is, it gets even more complicated, too, because there was one, um, we watched a movie uh, uh, called The Power of the Placebo in preparation for this show. And they talked about one, uh, there, there's a, a guy at Harvard University who's actually studying placebos. And uh, he did a study where he took IBS patients or IBS sufferers, and he actually gave them placebo and told them that it was placebo. They actually even wrote on the bottle placebo and said, we're going to give you this placebo, but there are um, shown benefits to, to taking a placebo. And they interviewed one of the, uh, the, the subjects in the study who suffers from pretty debilitating uh, IBS. And the, it actually, in something like 60% of the people who got the placebo, they actually still had an effect. So it's like what, you know, the, the, the common thought behind placebos and how they work is that there's a belief there that you believe that you're getting an actual medication and there's some sort of like form of deception there that you're fooling yourself into thinking that you're you're doing something to get yourself better but this this subject that they interviewed was absolutely amazed you know because she's sitting there saying there's no way this is going to work it's just a placebo there's absolutely no way yet she completely benefited from it so, it, again, it just complicates matters even more. It's like, what is going on here? Like, is it that, you know, that just the act of taking a pill kind of convinces the body that they're going to mm-hmm. get better? Is it uh, the desire? Is it just having some sort of external validation in some way that, that you're, you're get doing something to, to help yourself? But, yeah, I mean, it, the fact of the matter is it doesn't even require any level of deception. There actually can be an effect from taking a placebo when you know it's a placebo. Hmm. And another weird what thing a- is that it happens in animals. <laughs> yeah. First, uh, the couple studies I read, they were actually conditioned with the real drug a couple of times so they could know what the effect was. And then they replaced the injection, like say for pain, with just the plain saline solutions. And the rats or the dogs or whatever they were testing, they actually experienced the relief a relief in pain, and they tried it again with uh, dogs who had seizures, and they conditioned them, and they gave them like a dummy pill, and the dog showed a reduction in seizures. So it's not hmm. that you have to be of a, a higher consciousness 
Yeah. Um, maybe Zoe will talk about that in her pet segment, but I don't know. Are, are, do humans or animals access something that's in the field or, say, like the universal mind that surrounds mm. everything? And is that what is responsible for the healing, even if they know that it's a placebo or have no idea, like in the case of a rat? Well, I think yeah. that... Uh, yeah, well, that's- go ahead, Jonathan. Um, I was just going to say one of our chat participants here says, uh, what does the placebo effect tell us about consciousness slash information? And is there a difference in humans affected by placebos and those not affected? And I'm, I'm curious about that as well. I, I don't really, I mean, we can talk about what we, what we think it means regarding consciousness and, and information or information theory. Um, but I'm not sure if there's a difference between the different types of people who are affected, you know, like is, is one person who's cured by placebo, you know, the more or less advanced, so to speak. I mean, that, that's so super subjective term, but you know what I mean? Like, are they, is there some sort of different psychological or physical or genetic makeup between the people who are affected by placebo and those who are not? Well, I think part of it, well, I think the, first of all, we just don't know at this point in time because the researchers haven't really gone that far, but you know, maybe as a as a direction in which in which this science should be headed is to take into account that um, first of all, this is something that we don't understand totally yet, and then we can look at a field like hypnosis, where uh, again, that's another another phenomenon where people seem to have different degrees of susceptibility to it, and even um, even within those groups, that you have something which I, I think I mentioned. One of the last times I was on the show here, if not, it, I might have said it on the truth perspective, but the phenomenon of um, induced like lesions or burn marks in in hypnosis. Mm. So a, a, a trained hypnotist can actually um, convince a person to produce like a, a burn mark, like an actual burn on their skin, and, and yeah. types of lesions like this. And but it, but those cases are even rarer. So it's even harder to to produce a lesion like that. Um, than it is just to hypnotize a person. And so I think with with this placebo effect, that like if you if you look at the um, who who benefits from it and who doesn't, then I think first of all, that's probably we're, we're identifying something, some kind of difference between people in in these like we're identifying some kind of groups, these identifiable groups within within the human population. But I think that it's possible, at least, if we were to understand the placebo, what's really going on, and actually research it and look at what what's actually going on and how to how to um, um, what's the word like heighten the effect or control the effect. I, it's I, it's hard to say with any certainty, but I think it's definitely possible that it could be used um, on anyone if it was totally understood. So there may be a reason why certain people are less susceptible to it in its current form, but if we knew more about it, it's possible that giving that placebo in those conditions and with certain understandings, the, the placebo would have an effect. That's just my guess. Right. Well, Joe Dispenza gets that into that in his book, where he talks about hypnosis, as you mentioned, Harrison, and how more, some people are more suggestible to other people. And for the placebo effect to work, you have to really believe, not just on a conscious level, but on a subconscious level, where it gets into like how you see the world, what you think about yourself, what you think about other people, uh, what you believe about how the world works. 
um, all of those things can affect whether or not you would benefit from a placebo and not just that, but like how great of an effect that you would get. Um, there was uh, a study he talked about in his book, a hypnotism study where they were like testing how suggestible people were. And, you know, they narrowed it down to like a handful of people and they had some of those people go to a restaurant and they gave them suggestions like they were very hot and they had to take their clothes off. Some of the people, like they had already passed the test saying that they were suggestible in the first place, but some of the people kind of questioned it, like their analytical minds kind of got in the way and they wouldn't take their clothes off in public. But some people like stripped down to their underwear in a restaurant in public. And there was this one guy who was so suggestible, they convinced him that he was a hired assassin. And they actually got him to assassinate somebody with a fake bullet and fake blood and all that stuff. But uh, that's how suggestible he was. So I think that is part of it. Like, if you truly, truly believe that, you know, you're going to realize some outcome or you truly believe that something is going to work for you, I think that that'll kind of influence how suggestible you are to the placebo. Well, but I think one thing that needs to be taken in mind is uh, the nature of that belief, because mm-hmm. like we have, we have, we have examples of the people like, like you mentioned with the placebo who don't think it's going to work or who know it's a placebo who are then affected by it. I think perhaps, you know, a possible hypothesis for what's going on there is that their, their conscious like yeah. verbal belief is that mm-hmm. it's not going to work, but on a deep level, like a mm-hmm. subconscious level, they actually believe it. Yeah. So you can get this. I mean, hum, humans are contradictory beings to to begin with, and so I don't think it's a stretch to kind of hypothesize this because you can have, um, well, just look at the example of um, like it's. It, I think in psychology it's called a um, something reaction. Um, but the, the example that they give, like when I when I took psychology in university, was of a person who has like vehement anti-homosexual beliefs and mm-hmm. it turns out they're actually homosexual and they didn't even know it yeah. like so mm-hmm. so they'll have a conscious belief that is totally at odds with their real subconscious belief and so i'm i'm guessing that that may be what's going on in some of these cases where people either know that the the placebo is a placebo or they don't believe it's going to work but it ends up working because on some kind of subconscious level they do have that belief and so, uh, Doug, I think you mentioned you were just throwing out hypotheses out um, on what's going on, and you said that maybe it's got something to do with, like, your body. So by just the act, the physical act of taking a pill, like, for your body, which isn't your conscious mind, your body taking a pill knows that, knows what's going on. Like, it, it can, you, your mouth can feel the, the pill going in, you can feel it going down your esophagus, you know that's, a, that's an experience that your body has had numerous times, presumably, and... There's uh, an association, that's where conditioning comes in, between taking the pill and it being medicine and you getting better. So even if you don't believe, or even if you know that this is just a a random pill, the very physical act of ingesting that pill may have, may basically convince your body that it's taking something that will be beneficial for whatever reason you're taking it. Yeah, because most people consciously won't admit that they believe in magic, which is kind of what this sounds like. But really, it's where science meets mysticism. But people aren't going to say, oh, yeah, I think I can heal myself. I think placebos work. I mean, they have no clue. I, I also wonder if there's maybe something going on there, too, as far as, like, how susceptible someone is to authority. Um, I think that, you know, if a person is the type of person who really puts a lot of emphasis on external um, things affecting them, 
um, you know, having some sort of authority outside of themselves or some sort of effect outside of themselves that affects them, that even if they consciously realize that it's a placebo that they're taking, you know, because they've, they've been given something, there's some sort of external um, stimulus there uh, that was given by a doctor, an authority figure, that, um, you know, even though consciously they realize that there's, there's nothing here because it's been given by a doctor, because there's sort of this external authority that has told them that uh, this may have an effect, that it, it kind of affects them on a, a completely subconscious level. Yeah, I think, um, I think it may be um, a lot to do with um, not necessarily the fact that they're being told it's a placebo. It's like they can know it's a sugar pill. But the very fact that they they are aware that um, that it's had beneficial effects on others mm. um, can can be that sort of catalyst to sort of um, to increase those those internal immunological responses, you know, and get over whatever illness it is. Um, there's a, a doctor called Robert O'Becker, and um, he re- he wrote a book called Cross Currents. And it's basically about energy medicine and um, and electro pollution and things, but basically he cites this um, this amazing account of um, of a particular patient who who was suffering from um, suffering from like an incurable terminal cancer that was inoperable and there was absolutely nothing that they could do about it. And at the time, this was in the 1960s. Um, there was uh, a prominent drug called Latreal. I think that's how you pronounce it. And it was uh, promoted by all of these physicians and doctors with like excellent credentials. And they were all saying how it was really powerful anti-cancer. And um, so, yeah, this, 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 this patient basically went to his doctor and he said, look, can I try this? Um, I've heard that it's, you know, it's, it's cured people of their cancer. And so the doctor basically supplied this this drug to the patient, and um, and the patient in in the space of a few weeks he went from being underweight, severely fatigued, and um, and really quite ill, um, to absolutely in remission. You know, he completely cured his cancer in the space of a few weeks. There was no sign of the tumor; it had completely disappeared. And um, he put weight on, his pain had disappeared, his symptoms are, are completely gone. Um, and then all of a sudden, uh, there was a press release, um, which was a few sort of skeptic, skeptic scientists who basically came out and said, look, this drug is a farce, it doesn't work and it's worthless. And, um, and the guy's symptoms came back the next week, the tumour reappeared and he started feeling the pain, you know, he, um, he went back and he, he basically developed cancer again. So his doctor said to him, look, okay, um, I'm going to give you a more potent form of this drug. When in fact, what it actually was that he was giving the patient was, um, was distilled water. But he says, yeah, I've got this more potent form, so I'm going to give this you. And, um, and the patient basically went back into remission cured his cancer again and then um he was on the stages of recovery he thought he completely recovered and then all of a sudden the fda announced a few weeks later after that that um that they completely supported the press reports and that this drug was essentially worthless and yet again funny enough the patient went back into remission and um and he died two weeks later 
So, so basically, like this this guy, um, you know, he he cured his cancer, and then when when he was told by by some authority figure um, that it was worthless and that it didn't work, he 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 developed his cancer again. And then another authority figure told him that it did work. So he cured his cancer. And then, you know, the FDA came out again and he, he died. He died of the cancer. And I just thought that was, that was a really amazing account because it just shows how, I guess, the amount of belief that we place in whether something is successful, uh, not necessarily on a conscious level, but if they, especially if there's an authority figure, is telling us this is going to work um that 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 could be the main factor in you know in curing these diseases via placebo mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. well there's a in this chapter that i've been reading on psychobiological influence they go through kind of a whole bunch of related phenomena um, because like i mentioned earlier placebo and psychoneuroimmunology is just they're just kind of a couple Phenomena that happen to be accepted by the the medical establishment at this point because they either they have some kind of explanation for them or they're just brute facts in the sense that they can't escape them like the placebo effect. But there's um, I want to just read something from a couple of these sections to to just kind of go into that um, well two areas the authority aspect and the belief aspect. So what's got what's actually going on here? And this section is on two phenomena, sudden death and voodoo death. So in sudden death, um, well, they've, this one researcher wrote on it extensively, and he gave it the name, the, the giving up, given up complex. And this often happens after receiving a sudden shock, such as the news of a death or a serious loss, a sudden fright, um, or occasionally um, a time of unusual joy. And so these are often, um, yeah, events causing acute anger or some other emotion. And these people will just kind of die either right then or a very short time after that. And then there's the voodoo death, also called the hex death. This is often, more, most often found in so-called primitive cultures, um, you know, with where there's still the practice and belief in like witch doctors and stuff like that and sorcery and hexers. And um, so in this case, it happens, um, the, the person usually believes that they're going to die at a particular time, and then they actually do die at that time. So mm-hmm. they, they quote a whole bunch of these studies by anthropologists and physicians that are like in these other cultures, and, and, and just how often that they have seen this phenomenon. Um, so it's undeniable that it actually happens. And so just a couple of quotes from here. Um, so one of these people doing the research, a native nurse, now a Christian, um, had, been an outs- had been outspoken on the foolishness of accepting the belief in the death curse, but who nonetheless died within three days of learning that he himself had been cursed. Uh, even in the United States, belief in voodoo death and the associated cases persist among particular sociocultural groups such as African Americans. Such cases, however, are by no means limited to pre-literate or folk societies. They also occur in modern Western cultures. Although superficially different, the general phenomenology of Western cases parallels those found in Aboriginal or pre-literate cultures. The belief that one is going to die may be generated not by a witch doctor's curse, 
but by more culturally congruent phenomena, such as a fortune teller's prediction, a doctor's pronouncement of a hopeless condition, or some other suggestion accepted by the patient. So I want to get into a, a couple of those just in, in a minute, but right there, um, just think about that. So in our culture, this the same thing can happen um, by, let's say, a fortune teller's prediction. So let's say that you believe in astrology or you go to a psychic and they tell you something about your life or a disease or something, and then and then it happens, and you're like, oh my God, the prediction was right. Well, not necessarily. It could just be the case of this, not just a self-fulfilling prophecy, but something um, along the lines of this placebo where you are actually somehow producing the effect in your body. Um, maybe like we'd be getting more into parapsychology, but it might, you know, life circumstances in other ways. But if we just focus on disease and health, that can be completely produced by yourself and the suggestion produced by that uh, fortune teller. So if they say, okay, you're going to die when you're 30, you might die when you're 30. You wouldn't have otherwise if you either didn't believe it or if you didn't get the prophecy or the fortune in the first place. But then you've also got doctor's pronouncements of a hopeless condition. So a doctor tells you you're going to die in three months. You die in three months. You might not have died in three months if your doctor hadn't said that. But then there's this other kind of general one or some other suggestion accepted by the patient. Well, think about all the things in the news, like the big things telling you, if you do this, you're going to die. If you smoke, mm. you're going to die. If you mm -hmm. eat this, you're going to die. Well, so even if we look at the like epidemiological studies showing these correlations between these, um, these practices that you know, people do in their everyday lives that are, that are just so over the top, um, promoted in, in the mainstream, um, you know, doctors and, and media and politicians, then a lot of these people, it's entirely possible, are dying mm -hmm. because they're being told that they're going to die. And there may be actually no causal link between the the actual like smoking, for example, and the death. So just something to consider there. Um, no, yeah, there's a lot of yeah, cases. Oh, there's a lot of cases of uh, cancer diagnoses where you know people may have lived for years in retrospect with cancer in their bodies, and then as soon as they have that diagnosis, they're they're done within you know two to three months. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've got a couple examples. I got a couple examples yeah, of that from this book. Yeah, so um, so they continue on that a corollary of the belief in voodoo death is the belief that the curse can be overridden by countermeasures of a more powerful figure. So in this case, they give an example, well, a few examples, but one of them. Um, this is a case described by Midor, whoever that is. This is an Ameri of an American man who is considered doomed by himself and his family because of a, because of a hex put on the patient by a voodoo priest. Yeah. His, phys his yeah. physician likewise considered him to be near death, but he was successful in overriding the hex and setting into motion an almost instantaneous and rapid recovery by fully entering into the belief system of the patient and his family and conducting an elaborate and convincing counter-hex. And mm -hmm. save the guy's life because this doctor just kind of said, "Okay, well, this guy believes it. I'm going to go with it, and I'm going to counterhex this bad, this bad guy, and did it." And um, yeah. so another example: um, this was an elderly man who had been given the diagnosis of widespread, incurable liver cancer. He and everyone around him believed in the finality of his diagnosis, and he died shortly thereafter. An autopsy, however, revealed that the diagnosis had been a false positive. Only a small cancerous nodule was found insufficient to have caused death. Another example, um, the relationship between bereavement and depression in the onset of a disease. 
Um, okay. Well, well, yeah, I won't read the case, but this, the, there is this link between bereavement. <coughs> so when someone close to you dies and you get depressed and then disease will start and oftentimes there's uh, increased mortality caused by cases like this. Um, so Midor, the same guy that quoted the study above, he considered these cases to be examples of hex deaths, um, defining a hex death as, quote, a ritualized pronouncement of death by someone perceived by the subject to have immense power and authority. So this is getting back to what you were saying, Elliot, that, that that seems to be a big part of this is that the if you perceive the person um, kind of hexing you or curing you as this this authority that has the, the power and the ability that has that can have a large or a big effect on the whole thing going on and then just one more example now this gets back to the whole um, nature of of the belief uh, system going on here so this is in the section on faith healing um, and so in this case the role of faith and hence of self-suggestion is somewhat less clear so in this example that means that um, they're going through cases where it's kind of pretty obvious that probably the main thing going on is that the person is self-suggesting self-suggesting that this is going on so they might they might go to like a holy site like uh, Lourdes in France and and because they believe they're going to be healed they end up getting healed doesn't necessarily have to, anything to do with people around them or like an authority figure or something like that but um, so this one researcher described a 1931 report in a medical journal of a case involving a doctor with chronic and long-standing eczema who was cured in one day after going to a woman known for her cures by prayer. He had originally refused to go to her because he was an, a an atheist, but he finally went <laughs> to his family's urging and out of desperation for relief. So here's, a, again, an atheist going to uh, you know, a, a Christian person who's going to pray on him and heal him, and he gets healed. Wow. Well, what a lot of these studies or anecdotal case studies have in common is that the person has a strong belief sometimes, maybe not consciously, but they might have a strong belief that they can heal or someone can heal them or something can heal them. And it's also accompanied by a strong emotional reaction, whether the emotion is something positive like joy or happiness or love or gratitude or it's accompanied by a negative emotion like anger or fear or something like that. And they also probably visualize the, the future outcome or what it might be like to die or to be ill or to get better. So I think like those are some commonalities. Like Joe Dispenza talked about that in his book. Um, so he was talking about spontaneous remissions, and he said that he noticed that there were four things that people who do have, like, these miraculous healings, four things that they have in common. And the first thing was that all of them believed that there was an intelligence within them that was giving them life. Uh, there was a connection to something, a force, something much greater than themselves. Um, they thought that this force loved them more than they loved themselves and knew how their body works better than they knew consciously. And they thought if they could make contact with this intelligent force that it could heal them. Um, the second thing that they thought was that their attitude or their, their way of living, the emotions that they held on to all their lives created their condition. Um, the third thing is that they realized that they had to reinvent themselves and become kind of a different person. 
and they ask themselves, what would it be like to be healed or what would it be like to feel good every day or not be sick? Um, who do they know in their lives that they want to be like? Like, do they have a hero, like uh, someone who's really healthy and gets things done? Um, what was it that caused them to lose their belief that they could actually get better? Um, the fourth thing that they uh, had in common was that they all rehearsed what they were going to be like in the future, kind of like uh, positive visualization. Um, and they had long moments where they lost track of time and space because they were so involved in picturing their future selves that they lost track of their body and their environment and time. So Joe Dispenza said that when you get into this point where you lose track of time and space, that's when your body can rewire itself and certain genes can be turned on or certain genes can be turned off, like the, the epigenetic factor that plays into a lot of this because um, not your genes aren't your destiny. Uh, your genes aren't fixed. Like people say they have the gene for cancer, but if they have the gene for cancer, as soon as they're born, they would get cancer and die. So what is it that uh, stops a person from having cancer when they're born? Why does cancer come like 40, 50 years later? I mean, what is that? So, Right. Well, the other, the other side of that is to look at the people who, um, who get sick mm -hmm. and who end up dying from, from these illnesses. So um, the most common um, associations that they find in, in these cases of mind and disease is uh, the relationship between chronic negative emotions mm -hmm. such as depression or hopelessness and illness. So hopelessness seems to be a big one. And, yeah. um, and so the, there's this one study in, that they found um, a study in which a complex of beliefs in traditional Asian medicine and, and astrology seemed to have contributed to mortality among people who held these beliefs, presumably because these beliefs led them to feel helpless, hopeless, or stoic. So this kind of comes back to the whole astrology thing. Like if if you have a if you if your worldview is such that you have beliefs that the the future is kind of set in stone, that there's nothing you can do about it. That uh, you know the stars control everything, or you're being controlled by aliens, or um, you know, the, or there's just nothing out there. There's nothing to look forward to. There's no possible hope for change because everything is just matter, and and there's no there's no such thing as will or choice. Or you're being punished. Yeah, or you're being punished. Like yeah. all of that will can produce this sense of hopelessness, and that's the the biggest predictor that that you're gonna basically die. Uh, disease death <laughs> yeah interesting i mean it's interesting that you mentioned the feeling of hopelessness um because i guess i guess that that relates to um a personal sense of um of responsibility and of choice um if you can, if you can somehow take away someone's um or yeah, you basically tell someone that they're going to die in three months. I mean, there's there's a number of cases where people have literally dropped down on the same date as the doctor has predicted. Yeah. Um, and that's a really, really, really common thing. Um, and I guess when you take the um, the individual sort of um, responsibility of taking care of one's health away from someone, then they are. Um, you know, um, I guess they're a lot more susceptible 
to becoming seriously ill. And that's actually been shown in, um, in animal studies as well. I mean, there was an interesting study on rats, which basically showed that um, they, they, they got two, two sets of rats, okay? So the first set were, um, were subject to electric shocks in a cage. And the other set, the second group, were also subject to electric shocks, but they could uh, in some way ameliorate them by pressing on a lever. So they lowered the amount of electric shock that they would be given. And this gave them this element of, of, of sort of control over themselves or over, over their experience. And, um, yeah, so these rats were basically injected with a lethal substance of some carcinogen. And what they found was that the rats who did, didn't have any control over their experience um, actually had a much higher rate of cancer than the ones who did have that level of control where they could somehow um, ameliorate the amount of electric shock that they were being given. And hmm. so I guess what it comes or what this suggests is that uh, if if a if 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 a if an individual is is provided with this this sense of control over their health control over their experience then um you know then they they maybe have the ability to tap into this sort of primal um you know mechanism where they can heal themselves rather when they when they lose control completely or when they're told their fate um, they, you know, they feel hopeless and they, they, um, they essentially give in to, to that, to that fate, you know? Yeah. Hmm. I think yeah. that sounds like it has more to do with, uh, perception, you know, rather Go than ahead, somebody being right. given the, the illusion of control or given the illusion of no control. It's just really about what, um, the individual perceives, whether that individual is, has kind of the core belief that they are responsible for their own fate for for everything that happens to them versus somebody who believes that they are just a victim of of surrounding forces yeah and i think that comes down to just having a, an objective worldview because up um well there's two aspects to that one is objectively you know bad stuff is happening bad stuff's coming down the, the pipeline so you could argue that the situation is oh. hopeless but that's not I seem to have lost yeah. harrison there oh are you guys can you hear me? Can hear yeah, you now, yeah. Out, okay. Cutting yeah. out a little bit. Okay. So I was just saying that on the one hand, an objective view of the world can seem to justify like a hopeless worldview. But when you really get, when you really look into it, if you're going to be fully objective, that's that's not the way that I think that we should be looking at the world. Um, if you just looking at this idea of hopelessness, um, like uh, I. There's well, there's another example um, of these these studies that people have been doing. So there's been a lot of research on like stress and hopelessness and the contribute their contribution to disease. So this got some people thinking. Well, if these kind of emotions that we think of as negative um, are causing disease, well, might that um, might the opposite be true too? In that in that positive emotions might contribute to healing. And so there have been studies. Um, well. All kinds of them, for anything from laughter and and joy and and meditation that show the opposite that they do contribute to healing and health. And mm. so there has to be like some balance because I think that people with a with just a totally hopeless worldview, they're not doing themselves any favors and they're not being truly objective 
about you know the big picture because you know um, well I think both need to be taken in mind there needs to be an objective look at at this world which can often is more often than not horrible and uh, and depressing but that's only a part of it and really I think the most important part is this sense uh, you know where to find hope and that means having uh, trying to get uh, trying to form a worldview that is based on the way reality really works and part mm. of that is that the the future is open and that we do have some kind of influence um, and some kind of power really to to direct to direct our own lives within certain limits um, so um, I think back of, of the example of that Lobachevsky gives in, in Ponderology and just what life was like. Because, um, he, he, if, well, if you watch movies, you read books, you read Ponderology about what life was like um, in some of these countries and some of these cities with these um, just horrible governments. And if you just think about the, like the cliche of living under the Nazis and the Gestapo and being afraid for your life all the time, that someone was going to rat you out and you were going to disappear, um, that your family was going to disappear. The, the antidote that Lobachevsky found was to have um, these just good social relationships. You, have to, you, you find people that, that have the, the kind of same outlook with you and you laugh with them and you make fun of the leaders and you figure out how to live your life the way a real human should live their life despite what's going on, but at the same time with full awareness of what's going on because you've got to be smart about it. And so yeah. I think that's really a more objective look at it to, to, to know the political situation, to know the realities of life on this planet, but also to live that different reality and to make it a reality by acting, the way, um, acting in such a way that the, the good things about life are here, that the kind of we are the agents of, of that um, that goodness living amongst all the evil. It's a hard balance to strike because it does mm -hmm. seem like <clears throat> most people either go in one direction or the other. You know, it's, it's complete love and light. Everything is fine and fluffy and dandy or it's complete darkness and, and hopelessness. And it, it's really hard to, um, to strike that balance between the two, see the world for what it is and, and embrace the, uh, the good and the positive that does exist at the same time. Yeah, it's kind of a fine line when you think about this whole placebo effect and being able to heal yourself, if that is possible. Like uh, the whole new agey thing where you can create your own reality. And if you just have positive visualizations, you know, you can be beautiful and have, you know, a nice car and a lot of money and all that thing. But at the same time, the, the brain is neuroplastic. It can be changed. There is... Uh, intelligence in the universe that if you know how you can tap into so in a way you can sort of within certain boundaries as Harrison said you know create your own reality where you're not in denial about things you see things realistically but you also can tap into some kind of inner power mm -hmm. group power yes yeah the thing we were talking earlier a little bit about um authority you know in the authoritarian kind of complex and that people seem to accept this when it comes from an authority it makes me think about the idea that um you know we'd be better off being our own authorities um mm -hmm. you know certainly there are people in the world that that know more about certain things than we do and that should be ex uh, accepted in certain cases um but at the same time you know you have 
kind of much more power over your surroundings and things that happen in your life when you are confident in your own authority. And it, it had reminded me of a, of a personal story. Um, I had met at one point a number of you. This is like, was like 10 years ago. A, uh, a guy who was a, a Buddhist monk and we ended up having a conversation and uh, he had mentioned that many years ago, he was quite old. He was in his like mid eighties, I think. And he had said that many years ago when he was young, he had gone to the, the hospital with some pain and the doctor told him that he had terminal cancer and he laughed at the doctor mm-hmm. and walked out of the hospital and you know, <laughs> lived, lived for many, many years afterwards and he never came back. So, you know, he wasn't succumbing to that uh, diagnosis uh, in his mind. Now, I don't know if that's the right course of action for everyone. I would say that he personally had a, a strong sense of his own authority and his own confidence that probably made that possible. Well, there's, yeah, I think that it's a tricky subject because, um, like, when we look at a lot of these these phenomena and the faith healing, uh, well, one thing that I'm reminded of is the book uh, Corruption of Reality by John Shoemaker, and he talks about, again, these preliterate societies and the kind of healing rituals that they do and how so much of it seems to be based on, or well, there's a, there's a big element of, of authority. Now, not necessarily just in like a shaman or, or you know, the, the authority figure, the, the leader of the group, of the tribe, but a kind of group authority and this this belief in in something external to to the group um, another example that comes to mind is there's a, there was a group in i think the 70s i can't remember their name but they were doing a a parapsychology experiment all of them were kind of um, pretty skeptical for parapsychologists so they they didn't necessarily believe in in spirits or dead people but based on previous researchers research they knew that um, these phenomena seemed to to come about more often when the people involved really believed in these sorts of things. So what they did, even though none of them believed in these spirits, they all got around and started these seance sessions, where they created the the per, like the the entity that they were communicating with. They named him. They figured out like you know they they determined who he was and what his previous history was be, would be, and then. They actually, you know, had this communication, but it, it's not nece- it's not that they were actually communicating with a being, but they were, but the 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 kind of the the releasing of their own personal responsibility and authority actually made the made the phenomena more easy to to get. So they would have like basically these kind of spirit board Ouija sessions with this guy, and the, like all these all the people involved were legit. There was no fraud going on, but it was. Um, from their point of view, it was total. It was completely automatic. It was what they call an automatism. So it was basically their subconscious mind create like the, and their character that created. But they were actually having conversations with this creation of their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not like they were making it up. They were. They would ask questions. They wouldn't know the answers, and they'd get the answers back, and they'd have like a, a conversation with this thing. So there seems to be um, not only, but the, the, it's like a two-edged sword. Where on the one hand, I think in certain areas there that it is totally essential and healthy to be our own authority. On the other hand, there's this this um, the sense of 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 a like being part of a group and 
a community, a tribe, and also um, like accepting the idea of something larger than us, something something higher than us, something that you know tradition that I think traditionally we've we've put people of authority in this kind of position when maybe they don't deserve it. But I think that the there's a there's a dynamic there or something that I think is essential that we just you know in our in our societies as they exist we haven't really tapped into the the totally um, healthy way of of going about it or looking at it and so you know I don't have the answers there I'm just I'm just throwing it out there because I think it's something that uh, that really I I think we could as a species really benefit from understanding. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. I think there is a, a healthy sense of, of humility and accepting that there are things that are larger than you, um, you know, be it, be it the group or be it something else. Um, you know, that's, that's a fine line to walk between that and the kind of, uh, I guess, as an example, like the dogmatic Christian idea, you know, that I am worthless in the eyes of the Lord kind of thing, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, being racked with guilt about your very state of being, uh, you know, so there's, there's a fine line to walk between being just being a, a cosmic doormat, so to speak, or being appropriate, appropriately humble. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe so, Jonathan, did you want to introduce some of these clips? Or yeah. Wanna... Um, I, th- I think, uh, one interesting one right now would be that, uh, we have a clip from the podcast Radio Lab, which I don't know if any of our listeners are familiar with. It's a it's a pretty good podcast. Um, uh, it's been on the air for quite a while, and they did an episode on placebo. And this is a clip that just talks about kind of the the stories that we tell ourselves about what we're feeling, and it, it relates to um, to soldiers in, in World War II. Um, so let's let's go to that clip, and we'll discuss when we come back. It's a story I learned from Daniel Carr. Daniel B. Carr, M.D. Uh, he told me about a guy who's really the father of placebo research. His name is Henry... Henry... Unangst. 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 Unangst is his original name. German, as Dr. Carr will tell you. Which, given the poor quality of my German, I would roughly scan as meaning anti-anxiety or perhaps anti-pain. This may be one of those cases where the name shapes the man. It may well be. It may well be. Because even though he ends up changing his name... To Beecher. Henry Knowles Beecher. He does go into medicine. To become a doctor. And then during World War II, he joined the army as a doctor and found himself at the great battle of Anzio, where the Americans landed in Nazi Europe. And he was right there. He was on the beach. Bullets were flying. Soldiers were being killed. And some were being wounded. And since Beecher was the doctor, it was his job to treat them. That's correct. The treatment at that time for pain, as it still is nowadays, was morphine. One problem, though. Beecher's division was cut off from supplies and reinforcements, and he began to run low on morphine. He had to figure out which soldiers needed it the most. And, and he's, he's talking to them, and he's asking them, about how much pain they're actually having. And this is Scott Podolsky, who's a doctor and a historian. And he would go up to these patients and say to them, so, Soldier? Yes? As you lie there. As you lie there, are you having any are pain? Are you having any pain? Quote, unquote. 
So imagine, Jed, you're a soldier. You're lying there with mm-hmm. shrapnel stuck in your gut. These are severe injuries. And you haven't had any morphine for, uh, I don't know. At least seven hours previously. Yeah, seven hours. So what would you say? Well, I said, well, um, I'd say give me some morphine. I'm in pain. <laughs> well, you want to know something? The striking finding was that in 75% of them, they'd say, no. No. No, Doc. I'm, I'm okay. okay. I don't need any morphine right now. Three quarters of them said that. Wow. This didn't make a whole lot of sense to Beecher because he knew about pain. Before the war, he ran a clinic in Boston, so he would see people with bullet injuries and gun injuries, more or less the same kind of injuries he saw on the battlefield. But back in Boston... Doc. They really hurt. Could I have a little morphine, please? Nurse. For some strange reason, says Daniel Carr, the intensity of the pain associated with being shot was lower in the battlefield than in civilian life. What could explain that? You know, maybe soldiers are just, they're tough guys. They don't, they suck it up. They don't, Well, no. No. Context. Context. That was Beecher's very simple explanation. Context. Context. Meaning that the pain that you feel when you're hit by a bullet, it's not just about the bullet. It's just as much about the story that comes with the bullet. So consider these two different stories. Story number one, you are a soldier and you've been shot. As the bullet passes through you, the first thing you think is, oh man, I'm shot. The second thing you think is, wait a second, I'm alive. If I can be evacuated from here, I'll have a period of recuperation. They'll take me to a hospital, there'll be nurses there. I may get a medal. And a pension. Or a bonus. I'll certainly be acclaimed. They'll send me home, throw me a parade. I'll be a hero. Now consider the civilian story. This time you're a regular guy, civilian in Boston. Maybe you own a shop. Can I help you, sir? This is a stick-up. Give me your money. Oh, my God, no. And you've been shot. As the bullet passes through you, this time the thoughts flashing through your head have nothing to do with glory. That's right. Instead, you think, yeah, I'm alive, but what's going to happen to me now? You wouldn't get a medal. Uh, you were in trouble. How am I going to pay the doctor bills? going to be out of commission. I'm going to lose my job. How do I pay the rent? And if your family was depending upon you, they suffered. Nothing good is going to come of this. One bullet, two very different stories. And it's the difference in the stories, said Dr. Beecher, that explains the difference in the experience of pain. Those stories you're saying are, are somehow filtering the pain even before it's felt? Yeah. That even as the bullet enters the skin right away, or within seconds thereafter, you spin yourself a story about what's going to happen to you next, not consciously, but way down deep in your head. And the story you tell, that makes all the difference. So I thought that was interesting, and it kind of speaks to the idea of, you know, our, our belief centers and what we're experiencing and how that affects what's going on. So the, uh, you know, speaking to what we were talking about earlier, the, the diagnosis, you know, or the, uh, the, I guess, quote unquote, medical voodoo death, you know, where they, they give you a certain time that you have left, then you, you begin to create that, that story in your mind. Um, and through whatever mechanism that we don't really understand, um, you know, the, uh, the, the body begins to reflect that internal belief. I mean, I guess, you know, we're not going to suss it out in, in the time of our, our podcast here, but I, I, I would, I would tend to think that it has something to do with how there's that transition between consciousness and matter, you know, and so our bodies are made up of this physical matter and yet we are inhabited and kind of propelled by consciousness. And so there's a link there 
um, there's some sort of uh, transference or manifestation that takes place between the consciousness and the matter. Um, and that connect that very tenuous connection, um, you know, is, is what results in either a positive or a negative outcome, depending on, on where your, um, where your internal dialogue is going, where your beliefs are going, all of that put together. It's, it's extremely complicated. And I obviously don't claim to have any sort of a line on it. <clears throat> hmm. Well, um, <laughs> there, there, there is, um, obviously it's an, it's an extremely complex subject. Um, there on the, on the subject of the placebo, um, the, the, the author, um, who I stated before, his name's Robert O. Becker and he specializes in electricity and his take on this is, uh, something along the lines of, um, how the body, um, on sort of like a subatomic level, um, we have a sort of very basic primal electrical conduction system. And this is um, below the level of chemicals, below the level of neurotransmitters. This completely bypasses that. He did a lot of um, research on, for instance, on salamanders, on how salamanders can, you can cut off the leg of a salamander and it will completely regenerate. And that was the main sort of um, driver for his research. Anyway, like uh, how, how this relates is that what he found was that at the deepest level, there is something that basically controls every single mechanism in the body, which is uh, a DC electric current. And he says that the, the, the process of this DC electric current, how this drives our body, essentially creates something called a morphogenetic field. And this, in some way, may be able to sort of connect with a higher information field, which um, I guess would tie into um, information theory. And also, would it would make a lot of sense um, in that it linked to the electric universe theory as well. But how, for instance, the placebo effect... Uh, maybe our unconscious beliefs or our um, or our unconscious um, ways of of perceiving the world um, somehow what we can do is in some way tap into this primal DC electric current and this is the main driver for um, how we reverse disease etc etc um, <laughs> maybe off on a little bit of a tangent here I'm not sure quite where I was going with that but I I don't know. I have a feeling that maybe there is some tangible sort of reality to all of this and that it has something to do with electricity. Hmm. I think that's certainly possible. Um, in yeah. Joe Dispenza's book, uh, he talks about how you can do it for yourself and kind of tap into your own inner pharmacy. So you basically have to... I wouldn't say self-hypnotize yourself, but you have to get into a, a deep meditative state where you kind of lose complete awareness of time, your body, and the environment that you're in, and get into a suggestible state, uh, like a theta state, like the state you're in before you fall asleep. So you could either do your meditation like 
in the morning when you wake up or right before you go to bed and you get yourself very relaxed and that way your your parasympathetic system is not well I should say your sympathetic system is not in control you're not in fight fight or flight mode so that way your body can be in a position to actually enact some healing and uh, from that point you make suggestions to yourself you kind of visualize what you want to be what conditions you want to heal what genes you want to turn on or off I mean this is not exactly it but it's kind of like a simplified version and uh, you picture yourself healed as if it's already happened and you express gratitude for that and you have to have like a strong sense of emotion like if you visualize yourself healed like what does that feel like what would your life be like how would you be different and you express gratitude for that and if you do that over and over again your body will send signals to your brain and your brain will change and it will send those new signals back to your body and over time if you do it enough then you will become that person that you visualize in the future. Cool. That's interesting because it's, it's definitely not the quote-unquote kind of natural state. You know, as anybody knows, when you're feeling sick, like say, for instance, you have the flu and you're like, God, this sucks, you know, and you're just wrapped up in, in how crappy you feel. Um, it's, it's hard to pull out of that and, and feel gratitude for you know an imagined state of well-being that you're not experiencing at that moment so i, I imagine it's not um, you know it's it's not the default state for many people to uh, to try to experience this kind of process you know that's why you have to trick yourself with deep meditation <laughs> you yeah get into your subconscious mind because you can't just think about it consciously because if you don't really believe that it's possible subconsciously right. it's not going to work and he talks yeah. about in his book, too, about how that the latest scientific research in psychology estimates that 70% of our thoughts are negative and redundant, which I found really mm. interesting. You know, so like you were saying, Jonathan, when you're sick, your mind starts to loop in that, oh, I'm sick, oh, oh I'm not going to be able to go to work, and then it just is like almost like a downward spiral. Yeah. Well... Speaking of Dispenza, and, you know, we were mentioning earlier some of the ideas of, uh, you know, kind of perpetuating this, this state of, uh, of illness or, you know, <clears throat> perhaps even bolstering it by feeling like you deserve it somehow, whether it's, you know, like a religious kind of guilt complex or some other kind of um, psychological mindset where, where you might think that you deserve what's happening to you, um, that... Uh, you know, self-love, self-forgiveness, not to get too like airy-fairy, but it's very important to, uh, to be kind to yourself, uh, in those moments. And I think that that's probably part of what facilitates this healing. We have a clip of, uh, Joe Dispenza himself talking about that, um, the importance of, of self-love in this healing process. So let's, let's go to that and we'll, uh, we'll discuss a little bit afterwards, about six minutes. Sure, I think we're reality-producing machines. I mean, uh, there's, no, there's no single individual on this planet who doesn't create reality unless they have a brain injury or something. But for the most part, most of us are engaged in reality, you know, and we do cause effects. I think we reach a certain point in our life where we stop learning and we start feeling. And when we use feelings as a barometer for the unknown, 
it's a, it's a, it's contraindicated because feelings are usually a record of a past experience. So we try to predict how that future event is going to be based on a feeling, and we always return back to the old self again. So I love the idea of how we can actually produce effects. I love the idea that every human being is either lives in one of two states of mind. We either live in creation, which is growth and expansion, and and it's um, health and homeostasis, the emotions of love and joy and trust uh, make us feel connected to something bigger than us. Or we live in a state of survival, and the state of survival is living in stress, and living in stress is when your body is knocked out of balance, and the redundancy of that cycle over time, that imbalance that keeps happening begins to break the body down. And, and I think the biggest problem for us, because of the size of our brains, is we can turn on a stress response just by thought alone, and we do it all day long. In that continuous, redundant, being out of balance over time, that imbalance becomes the new balance. And now we're headed for contraction and disease and feeling separate from the field and being selfish instead of selfless. We begin to um, live in a state of breakdown, in a state of um, uh, um, uh, uh, disease and, and, and a lack of health. And, and so then those emotions then of those survival chemicals endorse the ego and then we become more self-indulgent and more self-important and more self-serving uh, because that's what those chemicals do. So we live in one of those two states of mind. Now, those chemicals tend to be highly addictive, so <clears throat> this is really good dinner conversation. We can talk about it, right? But actually breaking through, that's, I think, when you free yourself from the chains of those emotions that, that, that we memorize, when we actually break through, when, our, when we remove that mind out of the body, when we break the emotion that's trapped in physical flesh and the body's liberated, that's true self-love. That's true joy. It's the liberation of energy. So the anger that once was in there, the hatred that was once in there, the prejudice that was once in there, is transformed. It's transmuted into joy. And it's the same energy, but it just has a different spin. And so no one can do that for you. You know, that, that isn't something where someone, you know, waves a wand and then it happens. You have to actually be willing to be uncomfortable as you break that addiction and be okay with it. And then the moment the body's liberated and you feel that expansion, that's the natural state of being. Now you say, I love myself so much because I went further than I thought I could go. I transcended some limitation about myself in the way I think in the way I act, in the way I feel. That's the personality, that's the identity. Changing one of those things, really changing it, not just like changing your mind like I want vanilla ice cream instead of chocolate ice cream, but truly changing something that changes your neuro neurology, your neurocircuitry, changes the chemistry, which is your emotions that signal the gene that begins to change your very expression of health, and the very expression of life talking about when you make that emphatic, you know, declaration where you make that change <clears throat> and it's undeniable. There's a biological, neurological and quantum effect as a result of it. Well, I think I flirt primarily with the idea of how subjective mind has an effect on the objective world. You know, Newtonian physics is about cause and effect. It's about something outside of you 
fundamentally changing something inside of you. You know, we are an expression or, or a reflection of the environment. So as long as the environment is influencing how we're thinking and feeling, we can only be as great as the environment. So, and if we're thinking and feeling equal to the environment, we could only create more of the same environment. You know, the idea that we can change something inside of us, in our, in our consciousness, in our thoughts, and in our feelings, and be able to memorize both neurologically in our brain and hardwire that information, install hardware, and condition the body emotionally to be a mind, so mind and body are working together, if we're able to maintain that modified state of being, then there should be some evidence outside of us. So instead of cause and effect, I always love the idea of causing effects and to cause an effect. So the quantum model says you can cause an effect. And so I think where we get stuck with that is the idea that, you know, that it has to be predictable, that we should be able to know how it's going to happen. And, and that, is, that is, I think, our biggest error because we can never control the outcome of the unpredictable. That's the quantum model. It has to be uncertain. It has to come in a way that we least expect, that surprises us, that, that leaves no doubt that what we did inside of us produced some effect outside of us. And, and when you begin to have those small synchronicities at first and then they turn into larger and larger events and you experience that, that awe and that wonder or that joy and appreciation for being alive, I, I think that's the natural state of being. I think that's having that kind of sensibility coming from within us instead of needing something outside of us to change our state. I think that's true empowerment. So, yeah, I mean, you know, reality appears to be a little more plastic, uh, you know, than we than we think of it as being. Um, but it's not just a, a one-to-one equation like we've talked about before, not like you just, you know, kind of wish that things would be better and then they get better. Um, it, it's, a, it's a very complicated process of uh, connecting with um, your intent, your actions, and bringing that all together. And also knowing as much as you can about the topic or neuroscience yeah. or... Uh, how the brain can change itself and know the scientific concepts behind how it would work before you start trying it. Um, right. I think that would make a difference too. If you know if it's not just a bunch of woo-woo and a bunch of new age nonsense and you just sit there and think about something that's going to work, but you actually know that there are scientific mechanisms that explain how your brain works and why these sort of things can be possible. I think that makes a difference. Yeah, I think that's the difference between that whole you create your own reality shtick we talked about earlier. You know, if you just imagine love and light, everything will be better. But he really stresses the importance of input of knowledge in the process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that kind of gets into the whole epigenetic thing as well. You know that um, uh, Dr. Bruce Lipton did the uh, a book a while back called "The uh, Biology of Belief," where he talked about epigenetics. That you know you've got these genes that you know are constantly being fired or suppressed in some way, and that it's your environment that actually controls which genes are activated and which aren't. 
And, you know, whether that be something external to yourself, like uh, toxic exposure or something like that, or even your own kind of emotional state, um, all those things can have an effect on what genetics actually get expressed. So, you know, if you're constantly a, a very negative person who holds in a lot of anger, I mean, that's always, even if you, you are very good at kind of suppressing it and not, um, you know, expressing what, uh, what, how you're kind of acting to other people, just being in that state all the time has a very profound effect on your own biology, what genetics are getting fired and what aren't. So it's, it, you know, it, it, it really puts the onus of, you know, what state you're in on yourself. Like, what are you actually creating um, in, in your biology, in your day-to-day reality? These things um, are very much affectable by you, by your own uh, perspective, your own, um, j- just your own being. Yeah, in a, in a subsection of his book, he talks about the, the placebo, the anatomy of thought, and how, you know, um, it's basically, like he said in that clip, mind over matter, and that we should examine our thoughts and how they influence and interact with our brains and our bodies, and basically goes into how we're creatures of habit, and we think somewhere between 60,000 and 70,000 thoughts a day, which I thought was pretty you know, interesting when you're like, wow, what, what are your thoughts really consisting of? Are you, are you self-reinforcing mm-hmm. those negative experiences going back to the past constantly? And, and then your environment shapes that. And, and then it, you know, thinking the same thoughts leads to making the same choices and making the same choices leads to the same behaviors and to the same emotions. And then there you are on the hamster wheel again and again and again until you die of cancer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. And then there's a whole idea, too, of the fact that the the understanding that we actually get addicted to these states. We get addicted to these uh, habitual um, emotional uh, reactions or or, or just states of being that we get so used to these same kind of chemical messengers um, constantly reinforcing these same pathways um, that to try and get out of those things can actually be quite difficult. Like you actually have to break that addiction. You know, if you're in a dysfunctional relationship, you kind of have to look and see whether you're actually hooked on that relationship in some way. Like you're getting some kind of, you know, adrenal reaction or something like that to having this drama in your life. And that, you know, it, it actually does take work to kind of break that addiction to try and see it as dysfunctional and, and try and move away from it in some way. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think that, uh, you know, we're uh, getting close to the end of our, our time here. So let's uh, let's take a moment, if you guys are down with this, to go to uh, Zoya's pet health segment today. She has some information for us about placebo as it relates to pets. Uh, and when we, uh, when we come back from this, um, we will wrap up and uh, we have a recipe today for baconese. Mmm. Yeah. Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya, and today I would like to talk to you about placebo and what kind of effect it can have on pets, if it has an effect at all, and if it can be used to possibly improve animal lives and consequently their health. 
Now, one of the things worth noting that when I was researching on the topic of placebos, I found a lot of articles of veterinarians who are rabidly anti-alternative veterinary medicine. It seems like the idea of treating pets naturally is so offending to them. They can't sleep at night unless they'll ruin some natural vet's day with their purposefully uh, sarcastic articles or sometimes even bullying and trolling. But what is also funny about it, that their efforts to discredit the idea that natural medicine can have any positive effect on pets helped me in making this segment because they were so well versed in all the possible research on placebo effects in animals. Even if some of them dismissed this idea too, I wonder if I should drop a thank you note to one of them saying how helpful they were in increasing awareness regarding non-invasive and, oh my God, alternative methods of helping animals. But that probably would be too much fun, right? Anyways, so what is known about placebos for animals? Dogs, for example. Does the placebo effect exist in dogs? Until recently, the presumed answer was a resounding no because animals were thought to lack the cognitive capacity to understand the intent of medical care or the power of suggestion or to have hope of recovery. But now we know that it is nonsense. Uh, There is research paper, The Placebo Effects in Animals by Franklin Macmillan, which documents in detail the existence of the placebo effects in dogs, among other species. And there is another article named Effects of Human Contact on Animal Health and Well-Being that talks about the substantial benefits of this specific therapy. Both of the articles suggest that the placebo effect in veterinary medicine can enhance the efficacy of medical treatment and findings make a strong scientific argument for encouraging in-hospital visitation by owners when animals are hospitalized. As a side note, uh, this suggestion isn't surprising because many of us know from a personal experience that we heal much faster and better when at home or in a familiar and loving uh, surroundings. I personally saw several uh, examples when pets left uh, at stationary for recovery and treatment after surgery simulated symptoms simply because they were unhappy or missed their owners. The proof of their simulation was vivid when their symptoms were suddenly disappearing when the owners came to visit or take them home. But back to the topic. Experimental studies on the mechanisms of the placebo effect in animals uh, have been underway for at least 70 years. Components of this phenomenon, including belief, expectation, and trust, are presumed to be present uh, at a neurobiological level, though cellular mechanisms remain unknown. In humans, the placebo effect is generally ascribed to one or more of the following, classical conditioning, expectation, and indigenous opiates, the body's own naturally produced pain relief. In animals, interestingly, a fourth mechanism is also theorized, the effect of human contact. Numerous studies uh, have documented positive uh, physiological and health effects as a result of animals' visual and tactile contact with a human. The ability of human contact to optimize an animal's comfort and well-being provides a strong rationale for pet owners being present for many medical procedures. A recent double-blind veterinary study involved arthritic dogs randomly assigned to either a treatment or a placebo group. 
Their response to treatment was objectively assessed by force plate analysis, which precisely measures uh, the use of individual limbs while a dog is in motion. The results? 56% of placebo-treated dogs had an objectively measured significant positive response. Uh, when a person strokes a dog, substantial decreases, uh, substantial uh, decrease in the dog's uh, heart rate can be noted. Human contact also uh, consistently elicits major positive changes in canine blood pressure and aortic and coronary blood flow. The placebo effect in animals on immunomodulation, cardiovascular disease, drug withdrawal, tumor growth, and much more is well documented. The proverbial bottom line is that an animal's mental and emotional state has a profound influence upon its physical health. And human contact has a positive impact on the well-being of animals of all age groups and produces an array of physiologic, emotional, and health effects. Another element that we should consider that our pets, particularly dogs, can form a very close bond with us and undoubtedly can be affected by our emotional state. Stress is also a big factor as it has been numerously revealed both for animals and humans that stress is associated with a wide array of adverse health effects. Um, for example, the stress of unpleasant emotional states causes immunosuppression and enhances tumor growth in animals. If the inactive component of the medical intervention, the placebo, acts as a whole or in part by alleviating the emotional stress associated with the disease state, then the animal may experience health benefits not attributable to the active component of therapy. Mice, uh, for example, uh, maximally protected from chronic anxiety and other environmental stressors had significantly lower incidence of memory tumors. Social affiliation can mitigate the adverse immunologic consequences of social uh, stressors in non-human patients. Franklin Macmillan claims that it is plausible that by reducing anxiety and other distressing emotions, placebos could influence countless diseases, including some that we do not usually think of as subject to uh, psychological influence. However, stress reduction has limited explanatory value for the uh, diversity of placebo actions uh, because such a mechanism would, by definition, only be effective in states in which stress is present and actively influencing the health status of the patient. So to summarize, here is my take on the topic of placebos for animals. But first of all, regarding the skeptical veterinarians that dismiss this and other so-called alternative ideas as utter nonsense. Here is one case in point. These veterinarians were right. I once saw a young Rottweiler with osteosarcoma and very painful bone tumor. The owner was treating the dog's symptoms with homeopathy, acupuncture, and herbal remedies managed by a veterinarian practicing traditional Chinese veterinary medicine. She consulted me about other options, but she chose not to pursue uh, surgery, chemotherapy, or other conventional treatments, which were not likely to cure the dog. I did suggest, though, that since the dog was not walking on the affected leg and cried when it was touched, 
And since the evidence for veterinary homeopathy and acupuncturist pain relief is poor, we could try additional pain relief therapies. The owner was surprised and somewhat offended at my suggestion because she was certain that the treatment she was using was helping her dog. In situations like this, the caregiver placebo effect can lead to significant suffering for our animal companions. Well, this is the end of the quote. And in this particular case, I agree with the veterinarian since it would be much more helpful and prudent to put the dog on strong pain medication. If an animal exhibits all the signs of suffering and being in pain, it means that current treatment isn't working and there is a need for something more effective. That's why more and more veterinarians today talk not about conventional or alternative medicines as separate modalities, but as one integrative approach where in each specific case a veterinarian can choose to what extent to use elements for both approaches. But to simply dismiss the alternative approach as nothing but quackery is simply unprofessional. Anyways, regarding the placebo effects in animals, my personal take is that it can be helpful for pets, but mainly as a method of utilizing the natural ability of the body to heal itself by creating a supporting and loving environment. And also by human contact, such as stroking or petting in order to facilitate the production of the happiness hormone oxytocin. Basically nothing earth shattering and something we would do anyway if we really love our pet. So yeah, don't be afraid to love and hug your pet as much as possible, especially if they are not feeling well. And don't listen to angry vets who probably wouldn't be so frustrated if they would have their own share of loving and friendly hugs each day. Well, this is it for today. Have a nice day and goodbye. Totally agree. You know, like we need to, uh, I think, in the same way with um, with human doctors, you know, take them with a, a, a grain of salt uh, if they prove out to be uh, to be closed minded, um, mm. you know, and against alternative modes of treatment. Maybe just give them a hug. Yeah, exactly. Or not, or just walk out of the office like your, your friend did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they might not take a hug. <laughs> That's true. All right, so the uh, uh, recipe for today is uh, baconese, and this is similar to uh, aioli, the recipe that we have done in the past, um, but slightly different. Uh, so the ingredients are two egg yolks uh, separated from the whites, uh, one tablespoon of lemon juice, one teaspoon of brown mustard, and do see if you can find uh, you know brown mustard that doesn't contain uh, sugar. Uh, it can be difficult, but it does exist. Uh, you just need to look around. You probably have better luck at like a health food store or something like that. <clears throat> so one teaspoon brown mustard, one teaspoon of salt, one quarter teaspoon of white pepper, one quarter cup of bacon fat, and one quarter cup of uh, olive oil. Uh, so in a bowl, uh, beat the egg yolks until they begin to lighten. And this is most easily done with like a power beater like a power mixer. Um, mm -hmm. You can do it by hand, but it's going to take a hell of a long time. Um, so uh, beat the egg yolks until they begin to lighten. Uh, add the lemon juice, mustard, salt, and white pepper, and beat for about another minute. Uh, in a spouted measuring cup, 
uh, stir together the bacon fat and the olive oil. And you can soften up the bacon fat by heating it slightly if you want to, but you don't want it to be hot when it goes into the mixture. Um, but you want to mix it with the uh, with the olive oil in a in a cup that you can pour out of, so a spouted cup. Now, very slowly beat the oils into the bowl mixture uh, until a thick sauce forms. Uh, at at first, you want to drip the oils in very slowly, kind of one drop by drop. Um, as they become more incorporated into the yolk mixture and it kind of emulsifies, then you can increase how much of the oil that you're pouring in, um, you know, it, to like a very thin stream uh, as you mix it together. Um, at the point at which you're able to pour the oil into it as a thicker stream, uh, then if you're not using an electric mixer, you can switch to one at that point. Um, but you want to make sure not to, uh, to overbeat it uh, because it can separate then, and then you have to do this whole recovery process by adding it back to another yolk and doing the whole process kind of over again. Um, so the, the key point here is when you have the bacon fat and the oil mixed on the side and you begin to add it to the yolk mixture, add it very slowly at first and then kind of gradually increase as you beat it together, you'll notice that it begins to uh, thicken and it'll retain a, uh, a smooth texture. Um, so the result of this is, is generally thinner uh, than aioli or store-bought mayonnaise, um, but when you refrigerate it, it will thicken slightly, and it has the obvious benefit of, uh, of having that nice uh, bacon flavor and a high-fat content. Um, now, if you want to get fancy with this, you can add other things. Uh, you know, ch- Once you're done making the mixture, chop up some chives and drop them in there, or even take the bake, uh, some bacon on the side and chop it up after it's fried into little bits and kind of mix that in. Um, mm-hmm. There's a whole bunch of things that you can kind of do with this the same way you can do with aioli. Um, you know, you can add garlic and onion powder to, to boost the flavor a little bit. Um, but basically just, I would say, play around with it. Um, so that is uh, is bacon eggs. Like I said, basically aioli with, uh, with bacon fat added to the olive oil. So... Jonathan, have you had success with uh, refrigerating it and then uh, using it again afterwards? Because I've found that when I when I do anything with even with just with olive oil, um, it tends to kind of solidify in the fridge and split. Um, but you've you've been okay with it? Yeah, um, and you know, in the instructions for the recipe, they said not to overbeat it. But I, honestly, I usually beat it quite a bit with a, with an electric mixer, and perhaps mm. that's why. Um, uh, I've only had it separate from me, uh, you know, during the process of making it on a few occasions. And that's usually because I try to add the oil too quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it overpower it overpowers the emulsion and then it separates. Um, mm-hmm. But in the fridge, I've never had a problem. I mean, it does solidify to a certain extent. Um, and I have had it where uh, it's, it's kind of hard to describe. I guess if I make it too quickly, it'll be okay at the outset. Um, but then if I refrigerate it and take it out again, um, it'll separate as soon as it warms up mm. a little bit. Yeah, that's my but experience it, too. Yeah, but I did notice that if I take a longer time to make it and really be patient about adding that oil in very, very slowly and doing the process kind of with some patience, then uh, it, it has less tendency to separate after taking it out of the fridge. Okay, um, well, I'm going to have to try it again. I have, I have had col- luck in the past. Oh, I was going to say I have a culinary oh. suggestion to make the yeah. best aioli and mayonnaise on the planet. 
It's called a Cuisinart. <laughs> it's a oh, yeah. uh, food oh, processor yeah. and make mayonnaise all the time. And uh, I've definitely had that experience that you talk about, Jonathan, where it's like it's an alchemical process. And if it falls, you have to start again. But the Cuisinart yeah. makes it so you can whip it all up really quick without tiring your hand from the beater. <laughs> Sure. And then it and then yeah. it won't separate in the refrigerator either. Cool. And grapeseed cool. oil is always a good alternative to olive oil too. Oh sure. Yeah. Well, because yeah. grapeseed oil is a polyunsaturated oil, so it it'll stay liquid even when you put it in the fridge. So I found oh. that when I use polyunsaturated oils like that, it's fine. Like putting it in the fridge, taking it out, it's it's there's no problem with it at all. But when I try oh. to use a primarily monounsaturated oil like bacon fat or olive oil or something, that's when I run into problems. Right on. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. It certainly is a, a a tricky process. I guess while we're talking about it, I can just say like if if you do make this and it separates while you're making it, uh, and you'll notice there's there's no mistaking it. You you know when you when you make it correctly, it's a smooth texture. When it separates, it gets clumpy, and you can tell that the yolks have not mm-hmm. mixed in with the oils. Um, you can basically separate one more egg yolk into another bowl. Uh, and then slowly add that separated mixture into that egg yolk and beat it again. Um, just mm-hmm. go more slowly than you did the first time, and that's how you can actually recover a batch. And I, I, I'm uh, embarrassed to say that I, I threw away a number of batches before I learned how to do that. Um, mm-hmm. So now, now, if it you know if it does happen to separate during making it, you can recover it just by adding it slowly back into another egg yolk. So. So, cool. Um, well, that thanks very much uh, to our chat participants for today uh, and to everybody who listened in. Um, I think we're going to call our, our show for today. Um, and uh, we want to be sure to remind you to listen to the other two shows on the SOT Radio Network, um, The Truth Perspective Tomorrow, which I believe is uh, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, um, and then uh, Behind the Headlines, which is Sunday at noon uh, Eastern Time on Sunday. Uh, and that is Eastern U.S. time, and we are out of sync with Europe right now. So, uh, I honestly, off the top of my head, I'm not sure what mm-hmm. the what the European times are. No, neither am I. I don't know if they I go. They I don't know when they switch over. Yeah, I think it's Sunday. Yeah, okay. yeah. It's the end of it's the end of March, and then then we'll be back on that standard kind of time difference. Um, but you know, there's always Google uh, if you need to find out what the exact <laughs> times are. Um, so 2 p.m. Eastern U.S. time uh, tomorrow and, uh, and noon Eastern U.S. time on Sunday. Um, so thanks again, everybody, for listening in, and uh, we really appreciate you participating. We will be back uh, next Friday with a, uh, with a brand-new topic, and um, hopefully uh, everybody has a great weekend and a great week uh, to follow. So thanks again, and we'll see everybody next week. And remember, nothing really matters. Thanks, everyone. (laughs) Yes. Nothing really matters. Nothing really matters. All right. Thanks, everyone. Yes. Thank you. See you next week.